Hi, you're listening to another message from Sunny Hill Church. Our prayer is that these messages encourage, empower, edify, and equip you to live for Christ in 2023. Be blessed as you listen in. This week I was in Inverness up in Scotland and I flew from Bristol to Inverness and I was told about the beauty of Inverness and how like it's right on the gateway to the highlands and how it's absolutely incredible. Obviously you've got the big massive Loch Ness there and loads of locks and you know a few monsters here and there lurking around in the shadows and um, I was kind of thinking, well, you know what, even though I hate the flight, and I did hate the flight, I thought at least I'm going to get this amazing panoramic view as I break through the clouds, and I'm going to see Scotland in all its glory, and uh, I came through the clouds, and then we're about 15 foot away from the runway. (laughs) I'm serious. I've never been on a flight like that, where you break the clouds, and then you're like, bang, on the floor. Like, there was no distance between the floor and the fog and the clouds. It was unreal. And I was like, wow, is this what Scotland's like in February? I encourage you not to go until summertime. (laughs) I mean, what was interesting, and I think it sets us up for this series, because the Lord was speaking to us as leadership over the back end of last year about the need to really um, teach and encourage and um, inspire you to receive the freedom, pursue the freedom that Christ has won for you. Um, and so we, we're going to be doing a series on it all the way up to Easter Sunday. And then after the Easter weekend, we're going to be doing a Freedom in Christ course in our small groups, okay? So we're going to be following the Freedom in Christ content. So for the next, like, three months, it's just coming for you, okay? Because we believe that there is greater freedom for us to experience um, in our worship and in our relationships and in our, in, in, in our life, in our sense of identity, in our finances. Freedom should touch every facet of our being. And uh, just this week, like I say, I was in Inverness and, um, and we had this hotel and it was beautiful on the river. But yet the meetings we were having, I, had, uh, I serve on the national leadership team for our movement. The meetings we were having were in a windowless room. And it was such a weird choice I felt that the operations director who booked the venue I was like next time when we come all this distance to somewhere so beautiful it'll be good if there's at least one one window in the room in which we're meeting because here we were hooded on these chairs it was almost like a squash court meeting in this room knowing that outside was this incredible vista knowing that just outside the door there were these glorious highlands and locks and rivers, yet our perspective and and our reality was this kind of enclosed, limited space. And I was just thinking on the way home, I wonder how often our Christian life is a bit like that, where actually God has got glorious highlands of freedom for us to roam in, glorious places and spaces for us to rise to and occupy And yet we seem content in a windowless room thinking maybe this is all there is. Well, let me tell you, it's not all there is. We worship a God of the so much more. And so today we have kind of given us this subheading, the life you always wanted. And we're going to be doing things a little bit different at the end of my preach today. There's going to be an opportunity for you to actually write down some things that you want to be free from. Maybe there are habitual sins. We've already heard some of that. Maybe habits that you know are bringing you into um, conflict with God's best for you. Um, Maybe it's thought patterns, or maybe it's relational dysfunction, or maybe it's even a person that you can think of that you can see is so bound up, or there's going to be an opportunity for you to bring that to the Lord this morning. Um, 
But over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at different P words relating to freedom. And today's P word is the promise of freedom. Because the first thing you need to know when it comes to receiving freedom in Christ is that freedom has been promised to you. Freedom has been promised to you and it was sealed and made good by the cross. So it's not just some distant uh, delusional thing we're kind of like, maybe. It's like, no, on the authority of God's word, we know that there is freedom available. Freedom from sin. Freedom from insecurity. Freedom from worry. And there's a life that Jesus is constantly calling us into. But so often we, we exist in a windowless room and we're almost content because we've learned to live with the dysfunction. We've learned to live with the limitation. We've learned to live under a ceiling. And my hope is today that like this first message will start to just kick down some of that wall. So that even if you just get a spy hole of what's out there, then that would be great, wouldn't it? I think that would be so good. So let's jump to uh, John uh, John chapter 8, verse 31 to 33. says this, To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, and this is quite an iconic verse, soundbite, that's used when we talk about freedom. If you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples. So, I mean, we don't have to be rocket science or scholars or theologians to kind of deduce what Jesus is saying there. Basically, my teaching leads to freedom. My teaching leads to truth, and truth leads to freedom. And so, what we want to do is come with a posture of humility, saying, okay, Lord, we want to follow your teaching. We want to not just hear your teaching. We want to embed your teaching and receive your teaching because that is the mark of a real disciple, someone who doesn't just kind of go, yeah, Jesus was a good guy who said some great things and kind of this, as Mags was saying in her word, kind of, you know, a bit apathetic, a bit indifferent. But no, somebody who is really holding to the teaching of Christ, then they're really his disciples because then Jesus says, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The truth sets you free. Now, I don't need to tell you this because you are, you've all got a brain cell. You can see that there is an onslaught uh, and a fight against truth in the world. We can see that. And we're not just talking about biblical truth. We're talking about universal truth in the sense of every uh, truth claim is under fire by the culture. Especially truths that present a bit of a challenge or a bit of a conflict to really what people want in their flesh. But, but Jesus says is that when you follow his teaching, you'll know the truth. And when you know the truth, you'll be set free. Now, Satan knows that. That's why Satan in the scriptures is referred to as the father of lies. Because Satan wants you to live in a place of limitation. He wants you to live in a place of restriction. Even as a born-again believer, his tactic is to try and get you to live in the fullness of that freedom that's available in Christ. And so he will do everything he can to distract you from reading the word, from receiving the word, from receiving the truth, and living in freedom. And it's interesting because as Jesus is saying this to some Jews, as you can see, they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? I mean, that is, a, that is a bonkers response to what Jesus is saying. 
to be honest, it's just an out and out lie. Like Jews have been some of the most enslaved and oppressed people in all of human history. Like, I'm not even just talking about the Bible times. I'm talking about even now we're seeing like an attack on Jews as well. But like, I was thinking about this because obviously the person who says this, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. Obviously, this is totally obstinate. They're either proudly or ignorantly denying their very history. These same Jews that are here before Jesus are well acquainted with slavery. They were slaves in Egypt, oppressed in the times of the judges, captive to and captive in Babylon, and even in this very passage, living under the yoke of Roman rule. So it seems like a crazy claim that this Jew here would say, we've never been slaves to anyone, because there were slaves right then in that moment. In fact, a well-known theologian puts it like this, his name's Govit, says, about this person speaking, they speak hastily, untruly, inconsistently, for their strongest desire for Messiah was and is that he might free them from the Roman yoke. And had our Lord but proposed that to be affected by force of arms, willingly would they have enrolled themselves as volunteers. In other words, if Jesus would have come and tried to rally some response and resistance to the Roman Empire, there would have been plenty of Jews willing to kind of bear arms which just speaks to the context in which this person says, we have never been slaves. Now, I want to take you to kind of a window of history, Israel's history, that showed to us some significant times where they were enslaved. And so, I'm going to look at Exodus 1, verse, eight, uh, verse 11 sorry, to 14. Look at what it says here. This is about uh, the Israelites uh, who are under the enslavement of Egypt. You've got to remember that their history in Egypt was quite prosperous. They, they were there because, um, because Joseph prospered and he brought his family in. But then over time, even though Israel was coexisting with Egypt, the governors of Egypt had no longer any memory of Joseph and recognized that there was this people group, Israel, that was growing in number And people growing in number is a threat to any regime. And so they knew the only way to respond to this growing threat that was the people of Israel was to enslave them into the regime of Egypt. And what we read in Exodus 1, verse 8 to 14, is something there. Verse 11 to 14, sorry. It says, so they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pittam and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and work them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kind of works in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Just get a little snapshot of scripture there where Egypt are enslaving the people of God. I mean, it's a historical fact that Israelites spent hundreds of years building for the Egyptians. The magnificent cities of Egypt were largely built by the Israelites. And if you think about it, because they were there for like 20 generations, which is like 400 years, they became conditioned by the way of Egypt. So Israel, this people group, this small people group that were destined to become a light to the world... That was God's intent for them. They became slaves to the world. 
The very people that God wanted to bless and prosper became enslaved to the world's systems and structures. You know, I, I think about this if you were an Israelite in the day where you were brought into enslavement. One day you had rights, one day you had property, one day you had freedom, okay, and you would be raising your kids and there would be a sense of, this is our place, right? And then as soon as the edict comes from the Pharaoh that actually, you know, we're going to enslave these people, imagine what the next day feels like. Now we don't lay claim to our own property. Now it's not about earning a wage as much as we're forced into labor camps. Now it's not our right to kind of enjoy kind of the company of our children. Overnight, it goes from a place of freedom to a place of futility. Just imagine what that's like. For the first generation, it would be shocking. You know, if I'm raising my kids, I'd be like, oh man, imagine like last week. How good was last week? Or remember last month or last year or two years ago. But think about it over time. You begin to have children and they're born into slavery. They're actually born into the Egyptian way. So all they know growing up is we do what the Egyptians tell us to do. If they increase the workload, we have to come good on that. Like think about the third generation. It's no longer my parents' story, it's my grandparents' story, this idea of freedom. Think about the fourth, fifth, sixth generation. The tenth generation, it's not even a distant memory, it's no longer spoken about. Like you look more like Egypt than Israel. This is the predicament that uh, Israel find themselves in. And it's so sad. It's so sad because these people were the people of God. Yet they lost their identity. And let me tell you this. This is really important for you to hear. When you lose sight of your identity, you lose sight of your destiny. It's so important. To understand the connection between identity and destiny. And by destiny, I'm talking about what God wants to do through you. And the future that he has for you. But if you don't know who you are, you're going to be wandering around in Egypt serving masters that you're not called to serve. It's a pretty wild moment because God, as we know, raises a liberator by the name of who? Moses. Raises Moses who was raised and schooled in the ways of Egypt, yet he himself was a Hebrew. I'm not going to go into his backstory because we don't really have time. But God raises Moses the liberator, and the assignment on Moses' life is to lead the people of God into the promised land of God, which was Canaan. That was the assignment on Moses' life. You've got to go before the Pharaoh, and you've got to say, let my people go, speaking on behalf of the Lord, let my people go, that they may worship me in the wilderness. Because when you are enslaved, you can't bring worship to God, that he, that the worship that he is worthy of. So he says, let my people go that they may worship in the wilderness. So Moses, the liberator, on his own kind of lengthy journey of kind of equipping and preparation, ends up returning to Egypt and going before the Pharaoh. And we know that there's this, this divine tussle between Pharaoh and Moses, well, ultimately the Lord, and the plagues pass through the land as God is trying to sear the conscience of Pharaoh to, to basically get him to a point where he will surrender to the will of God. And ultimately, like I say, I'm not going to do the backstory, but the Pharaoh relents and says, okay, go. And so the people of God leave Egypt but we know that the Pharaoh and the armies of Egypt pursue the people of God uh, to the Red Sea. We, we, we kind of know some of that story, hopefully. 
Now, what's interesting about it is Moses has physically got the people out of slavery in to this wilderness place, which kind of speaks to uh, a reality outside of Egyptian slavery. But what we notice early on in this journey is that these people know how to complain. Like, and it's kind of wild, isn't it? Because they were slaves in Egypt. Personally, I feel like I'd rather live on my knees than stand enslaved. I'd rather a kind of a harsher, kind of a more difficult existence in freedom than an easy life in slavery. And so what we learn about the people of God is that they really resist this freedom. They really struggle with it. Because for them, they're a condition by the way of slavery. We see a couple of bits here. Um, in Exodus 14. Well, that's Exodus 16. I don't know if we've got Exodus 14. Maybe we have. No, we don't. Let me read it. Exodus 14, verse 11 to 12 says, They said to Moses, this is the people, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? <laughs> you know, it's like a slap in the face. But like, no, I brought you here to live, man. But they couldn't see it. He says, what have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? How dare you free us from slavery? Didn't we say to in Egypt, leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. This is an identity crisis. You can see it right here. A people called to be free, yet they long to be enslaved. It's mental. That's the Greek term, by the way, mental, meaning ridiculous, right? Okay, Exodus 16, another complaint. We actually read that there's 14 different complaints that they make, but I'm just bringing two to you. Here's another one. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron, Moses' assistant leader. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. We notice about the human condition is like, why can't we go back? It seems like it's hard to be free. Yet a promised land awaited them. Yet they had to leave Egypt to realize it. There's a... I'll tell you what, let me just go through this quickly because it will help. Actually, no, I'm not going to do that. There's a bigger picture at play here. You see, the Bible is a book about freedom. Like, it, it reveals who God is. It's God's word to us. It's a living word. So it shows us who God is, and it shows us who we are. But really, it's about, in terms of a story-wise, it's about the people of God returning back to freedom. And you'll say, returning back to freedom? Yeah, returning back to freedom. Because you see, even before the moment that we just spoke about with Israel in Egypt, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve lived in total freedom. In fact, you could say they were free indeed. Adam was not lusting after anything on the internet. Eve was not 
stressing out with worries that were dominating her thought life. There was no sense of restriction or limitation, only an abundance of options that God had mapped out before them. There was total freedom in the Garden of Eden. And it's kind of interesting because this becomes a helpful picture to us because what we know about Adam and Eve is that they rebelled against God's word. They stepped away from truth, stepped into a lie, believed the, eyes of the, believed the lies of the enemy, and ultimately then became bound and restricted, even mentally. We see one of the, f- the first victims of sin in the world was their awareness that they were naked. Before sin, nakedness was amazing. I'm not suggesting that we get so free at Sunny Hill that <laughs> we return to that paradigm. That would be a weird church, wouldn't it? Hey, we're so free here. We're even free from clothes. It's great. But like, there's a sense that like Adam and Eve came from this place one day where they were totally secure with who they were. Not just like they were totally in like the new integrity, a completeness, a wholeness. Like their soul, spirit, and flesh all in unison together that they would walk freely, nakedly around the Garden of Eden and it wouldn't be like, oh, this is awkward. I didn't do any sit-ups today. Okay, right? But then, after sin, all of a sudden, this self-awareness comes in. And when God returns to the Garden of Eden, we know that they hide because they're now conscious of their nakedness. They become insecure. And because they're insecure, their identity is under fire. And because their identity is under fire, we know their destiny is also under fire. And we know now that actually they were removed out of the Garden of Eden. And there it begins. This human condition. That means that we are inclined towards slavery, more inclined towards slavery than freedom. Think about Adam and Eve. One day they were free. The next day they knew the weight of sin. Now, if you talk about two generations, you know, their children, mom and dad told us about that time when they were free before sin came into the world. But then 20 generations, and then thousands and thousands of years later, here we are as humanity born into sin. It's our only kind of understanding. As we're born, we understand that actually... People are slaves to lots of things. And like, we may not even call it that because we, we, don't, we don't see it through that lens. It's kind of interesting that like, you, you can't know what you've never experienced. So for a non-Christian, for example, it's hard for them to grapple with the idea of freedom because they may feel free. Because for them, freedom looks like having enough money or freedom looks like having that dream relationship or having that dream car or whatever it may be or success in the workplace that feels like I'm achieving some measure of identity like self-worth and freedom but they've never known freedom because you can only truly be free in Christ and the same sorts of things with humanity that as we consider Adam and Eve multiple generations later we're living under the yoke of slavery. We're living imprisoned by a reality of slavery. Slavery to money, slavery to power, uh, enslaved to lust, enslaved to many things in life. Insecurity, anxiety. But the truth is, is that God wants us to come back to that Garden of Eden reality, really. He wants us to know that freedom. He wants us to know that sense of liberty, that so often we can't do. And actually, you know what? It's like sometimes people, um, yeah, when it, when it comes to this, it can be really challenging because some people just call it life. Life is hard. Life is challenging. Life is rough. 
Life has limits, all these things. Well, in this series, we really want to go after that because if we return to that kind of picture of Moses and we look at this, this what, what does this look like in terms of our life? What does Egypt represent? Well, Egypt represents the world, okay? The slave master represents sin. Israel kind of um, speaks to humanity. Moses speaks to Jesus. And Canaan speaks to freedom. That God has set a liberator, sent a liberator, Jesus, to break the back of that slave master off humanity and lead them out of the world, in the world, but not of the world, into Canaan, the promised land, a.k.a. freedom. This is really what the heart of the gospel is about. It's about Jesus coming as the liberator to humanity and setting people free so that they can live in the fullness of the promise of freedom. Now, the challenge with this is that, like, for some of us, we, as Christians, we've left Egypt, but we haven't got a vision of Canaan. For others of us, we haven't even left Egypt. We've said yes to Jesus, and so our soul is, like, we're saved. We're saved. But actually, that freedom that's available in Christ isn't being fully realized because we're still living in Egypt. We're still living in the world. Now, this is really important because, as you'll see, I'll go back to that passage that I started with, that Jesus is speaking to the Jews. So the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Then look at what Jesus says. Jesus says, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And here's the challenge when it comes to our destiny. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus helps us understand that we're living under the slave master of sin. And sin kind of intoxicates our vision and it... And it corrupts everything that we understand about who we are in God. And the, the challenge with sin is like, it at first feels so pleasurable. At first there's an appeal about it. But as soon as you take a bite of the cherry, you realize that it is loaded with poison. In our small group, I think, I can't remember who it was, but they once gave this illustration. And I did it with my boys because I thought it was that good. And they said, if I made a batch of cookie dough, right? Like I made this brilliant like bowl of cookie dough and I put it in there and I say to my kid, who wants cookies? They'd all go, yes please, like absolutely, like who doesn't want a nice fresh cookie? And the person said, now imagine if you just took a tiny little bit of dog poo and stirred it into the mixture and then say, right kids, who wants a cookie now? And I said that to my kids, they were like, oh that's grim. I was like, no, but it's only a little bit. Just a cheeky little tiny bit of poo in there. But when we see it like that, this idea that like some things look so good, 
But in reality, they're corrupted by sin, and so therefore the whole batch is dodgy and not worth touching. But the problem is often we don't see it that way because there's such a, a lust and appeal for it. And I was thinking about this, that like everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And the problem is with that is when you're a slave, you have no permanent place in the family. You have no right in the family. But a son, and that's the whole gospel invitation. It's not just to become a better person. It's to become adopted into God's family. But a son or daughter belongs to it forever. And if that's the reality, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. There's this uh, great passage that, um, that we read in Hebrews. And Matthew, do you want to come up on the keys? Because we're going to go into communion now in a minute. But uh, in, in Hebrews 8, we read the writer say, But God found fault with the people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. First of all, that beautiful picture of God leading them by the hand into freedom. But the thing is, the old covenant was oriented around the works that you did. Whereas the new covenant, which we're coming and going to be breaking bread this morning, it's not about the works you do, it's about it's not around your works it's oriented around his grace in fact in Matthew 26 Jesus says this while they were eating at the table Jesus took bread and when he gave thanks he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying take and eat this is my body then he took a cup and when he given thanks he gave it to them saying drink from it all of you this is my blood of the new covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins that's really the invitation of communion today is to actually Come to Jesus and in light of the cross and the shadow of the cross and say, well, Jesus, I want to be free. But I know that slaves can't be free. But I know sons and daughters can be free. And so in this moment in Matthew's gospel, when Jesus is reclining with his disciples, he takes the bread and he breaks it and he says, this is my body broken for you. And then he takes the wine and pours it and says, this is my blood shed for you. And this is the blood of the new covenant. In other words, we're coming into a new day where it's not about how good can I be. It's about just receiving the grace of God and coming to alignment with that new covenant. That it's no longer about my works. It's about his grace. And as we partake in communion to that end, what I want you to do, like communion, if you know Jesus as your Savior today, communion is for you. It's a moment where we come and remember the death and resurrection of Christ. But the truth is, is like, it's, it's, not, just about, it's not just about this idea of receiving Jesus so that one day I can go to heaven. It's about receiving Jesus now so that right now I can know a freedom in my life. I can know a liberty in my life. And I know the reality in this church because I speak with some of you, I pray with some of you. There are, there are habits and, and uh, lusts and things that we struggle to shake, insecurities, worries, concern that, that we sh- struggle to shake because what we try to do is say, okay, I've just got to try harder, I've just got to work harder. But the, the truth is the whole idea of the new covenant is that it's not about my effort, it's about his goodness, it's about his grace. This morning we were singing about his goodness running after me. It, it's like so often we, we think, we frame the gospel in this way, that it's about me trying to live up to God's expectations, but it's not. It's about actually just coming into that realization that Jesus 
This is all your grace. It's all your mercy. And it's about me just having faith in his mercy, his grace, his goodness.